0: Hi everyone, I'm your host NG, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the podcast. Sounds about right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. And on this episode I was joined by Jeff Maynard, author of the book The Frontier Below The Past, Present, and Future of Our Quest to Go Deeper Underwater. And the book is a journey through time and water to the bottom of the ocean and the future of our planet. Today, as nations scramble to exploit the resources of the ocean floor, the frontier below recalls a story of human endeavour. That took 2,000 years to travel seven miles, and then investigates how we will explore the ocean in the future. It was great to discuss the book with Jeff, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So, the first thing I want to highlight, Jeff, is you speak early on in the book about how you've divided the book into four sections each corresponding with an ocean zone. Um, why did you divide the book in this way and how have illustrations of zones in the past been misleading? With a
1: subject like this it's quite difficult for me to figure out how to structure a book because I'm covering a couple of thousand years of history, a lot of different people, non-fiction obviously, and I, I was wrestling with the idea of it's such a big subject, how do I make it more accessible for a reader, for someone to pick up the book and think, I'm not going to be daunted by this subject trying to read all this, to break it up. And initially I was playing with the ideas of breaking it up into um, uh, time or eras, you know, like the Age of Discovery or the um, Industrial Revolution. And none of that was really working because the pace of the book picks up so much in the 20th century. And what I always do with any manuscript, I always go through many, many drafts of you know writing and, and reworking my drafts. And also, always each draft I always print it out on paper. I just find things read differently off paper than they do off a screen for me. And I could just so I always print out each draft, carry it around in a two-ring binder, and with a pen and just make notes in the margins and all that kind of thing. And I was sitting there reading with this this two-ring binder with you know, massive draft in it. And I thought, I was reading something about the ocean zones. And I thought, gee, when do we reach each part of the new ocean zone in my manuscript? So I went through it with post-it notes and thought, okay, we go from this zone to the next zone. And I put a post-it note in there. And I, and I went through it, and it actually divided the manuscript up nicely into four segments. And I thought, gee, I'm clever, you know. And I, I, I patted myself on the back for about two days on how clever I was. It was a bit of a, came about naturally in a way. But it just seemed to work. And the other thing you said was the ocean zones are misleading. And that's because people don't really get a, a visual context of how deep the ocean is. And what I do at the start is I, I talk about the upper, the epipelagic zone, which is, uh, only goes down to 200 meters or a bit over 600 feet. But yet that holds about 90% of the life in the ocean because that gets the sun below that you move to the next zone. But in terms of the human journey downwards in the ocean, we were only about halfway through that upper zone by the 1930s. In fact, in, in terms of the distance from the top of the ocean to the bottom, by about 1930, we we'd gone less than two percent of that entire distance. And I really needed people to sort of get a sense of that. So what I did at the beginning of the book is to say, imagine you're standing in the ocean you know your feet are in the deepest point the top of your head is at the sea level and then I take people down saying well you're halfway to the top of your ears you barely you know you're still halfway the top part of your skull when you leave the first zone and you go into the next one and the next one you just get to just below your nose and people don't quite realize and then when they think of it like that around your hip area uh, you've reached the ocean bed and then you've got these very narrow trenches that go down and they're the trenches between the tectonic plates and they're pretty much your whole legs they're so deep so incredibly narrow anyway i found i found people have responded to it and said well, look you know I, you made me think about the ocean in a new way and um, and that was really one of my uh, that was sort of my hidden agenda is to make people think about the ocean by telling them about the history
0: Mm. yeah the way you described the listener or reader to envision the ocean zone really put into perspective just how deep it goes when you say you know the first part is not even just past your skull essentially Just regarding the epipelagic zone, which is from the surface to 200 metres underwater, what was the first known way that people used to dive, Jeff?
1: Well, initially, if we go back to antiquity, we we really had no equipment. We simply, people jumped in, opened their eyes and swam down as far as they could. They would grab a rock or something because the human body is quite buoyant. You know, our lungs are full of air. There's other air passages in our skull. And so if you jump in and try and swim down, you'll realise you're being pulled to the surface. It's quite difficult. So initially, people would just simply grab a rock or they'd they'd get a rock and uh, they'd have a rope tied to it and they'd slip their feet through the rope, jump overboard from a little boat or something, and that would pull them down and then they'd let go of the rock and come back to the surface. It wasn't until about the 15th century that we started to look at ways to breathe longer. And basically what we did was get diving bells. They figured if the principle is quite simple, if you take a, a drinking glass or something, tip it upside down, push it underwater, the air gets trapped inside. And a diving bell is the same principle on a much bigger scale. Now, if you take a, say, empty plastic household bucket, tip that upside down and try and push it under under water you'll realize it's it's pushing back to the surface quite firmly quite hard you know same as if you get the hollow beach ball or something try and hold it underwater it's going to come boing straight back to the surface so uh, they started making diving bells and they had to attach a lot of weight to them which means they needed a chain to the surface and lower them over the side of a boat And lower them down. And uh, the the way they made them, the the reason diving bells are called diving bells, initially all they did was um, get a church bell, because they were big, they were heavy, they were cast out of some sort of iron. So they'd get a massive church bell, put it on a strong rope, and lower it over the side of a ship. And that pretty much went on right up to the 19th century. They were modified, they were improved. You know, they came up with clever little ideas for them. They would lower lower because they realized the air would get stale very quickly, so they would lower uh, barrels of fresh air, put them inside the diving bell and open them up. Uh, they had a lot of methods like that, but it, that was simple and efficient, and it stayed, like I say, to the 19th century. Once we got to the Industrial Revolution, we sort of went from wooden sailing ships to steamships, and they were at first little made out of uh, steel and iron. They also had propellers underwater. And they had a lot of moving parts underwater. And that meant, whereas your wooden sailing ship, wind blew it along the top. But with a a, a steamship, you had propellers and things underwater. So there became a real need to work underwater to repair these things. But the, the Industrial Revolution was also, it was driven by steam. You know, we invented steam engines, made steam trains, and this uh, you know, steam's basically boiling water, creating steam, pressurise things. And so we began to use these pumps that were invented for the Industrial Revolution or created the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we started doing that, and that created pumps. We started pumping air down to people in diving bells. And then we came up with the diving helmet, which is the quite iconic, you know, a diver in big lead boots and big copper helmet. That's basically a one-person diving bell. He's got a diving bell on his head, and um, it closes off. He's got a canvas, or he or she, he's got a canvas dress that encloses the body. And we were pumping air down from the surface. And that was perfected around the 1840 mark. And that really revolutionized how we went underwater, because it was efficient. People could go down. They could stay there. They could stay there for a couple of hours if they wanted to. And they could also walk around on the seabed or... Be under a ship, work with their hands so they could use a hacksaw or hammers and spanners and things and that that was and that method which came into eighteen forty that's it's still used today it, it was so efficient uh, you can still do it today, and that sort of worked, and that really got us into the twentieth century
0: and with the diving helmet, was it the compressed air that led to its let's say significance or how it became so successful?
1: Yes, it was. People had been making, experimenting with diving helmets made out of copper, wood, all sorts of things for quite a while. Before the Industrial Revolution, there was no way of sending the air down to them. All we had was bellows, the old sort of um, hand pump type bellows that you might see. And that couldn't compress air very much. So you could get a bellows and some sort of pipe or air hose, pump it down to a person, but it was, at best you'd get a person down to three or four meters or, you know, 10 or 15 feet. You just couldn't pressurize the air enough to get them any deeper than that. Again, that was the industrial revolution. Once we started inventing steam engines to um, pressurize, uh, or, you know, steam started working pumps, then it worked in reverse. You could use a pump to compress air. So that, that came about like the beginning of the 19th century and, and once we started compressing the air and sending people deeper, we get a whole lot of other problems coming up because um, breathing compressed air for too long creates all sort of problems for the human body.
0: Speaking of the human body, Jeff, what was the scientific belief around diving even before then? Because I remember there was a part in your book when you mentioned there was so many different reasons people gave for why eardrums will burst inwards or the nose would split when people were attempting to dive a lot deeper.
1: Well, there were a lot of reasons, and, and uh, but, but none of them were really, uh, they, they weren't based on science. There was were, there were speculation, um, and this one goes right back to, um, well, antiquity, but afterwards people started to say, uh, you know, they, they they speculated that you could have a, an air hose, a really long snorkel, and go underwater and breathe through that. Of course, you couldn't, but they'd draw these things in books, Leonardo da Vinci famously drew a whole lot of inventions with people walking underwater and having these air hoses to the surface and things, they simply would not have worked. So there was a lot of speculation and that always remained. Even once we started getting the pumps and figuring it out, uh, we started getting the problems of, as you say, burst eardrums, the bends or decompression sickness. People were sort of speculating what it was. Uh, the, the science always sort of followed the speculation and the, the myth or the story, often by a couple hundred years. The, the people who speculate about things are, are generally um, are believed initially, and um, people say, well, it must be true. You know, it's written down in a book, it must be true. But it took a, it took a science a while to catch up in a lot of cases.
0: Absolutely. And just... One of my thought processes whilst listening to the audiobook actually was that is it fair to say that because of the valuable items being lost uh, due to shipwreckage around a specific time that this led to the, like, the shipwreckage revival business helped stimulate the wider exploration to go deeper and just the improvement of technology around it as well?
1: Yes, in, in certain periods of human history... The old expression that necessity is the mother of invention, uh, very much true in the case of going deeper underwater. The the diving bells and things that began in the 15th century, as we said, very much coincided with ships starting to go around the world. You know, um, Columbus gets across to the New World in 1492 and then the Spanish got around the bottom of Africa and, and into And and people, so within a couple of decades, you've got sailing ships going to the new world. They're coming back. Their wooden, you know, mapping wasn't very good. A lot of these wooden ships were sinking. They had a lot of valuable things on them. Often they'd get very close to land where the water was shallow and there'd be reefs and that's where they would sink. So there was a lot of wooden ships in shallow water. And by that, I mean, say 10 meters, maybe 20 meters, 50, 60 feet, something and if you've got valuable cargo there, people say, well, you know, we've got to figure out how to get down there and get it. And, and that necessity continued really in all the different phases coming into the 20th century. Uh, I say in the, in the book that once you, you get to the 1950s and the Cold War, basically, you got nuclear submarines and they could go deeper. They could stay underwater longer. But submarines communicate using sound. They have to have sound that, you know, they send out their little ping and it echoes off something and they can figure out where things are and how far away it is. So once people started doing that in nuclear submarines, they really had to study the deep ocean because they had to study sound channels. Sound will travel underwater at different speeds depending on three factors, the the depth of the water, the temperature of the water and to a lesser extent, the salinity of the water, the amount of salt content. And so once, for example, the US Navy started to say, we need to figure out where sound channels are because sound echoes and, and moves in funny ways underwater, they started to have to go deeper to say, well, we've really got to go deeper and study the ocean deeper. So again, it was necessity again that caused them to want to go deeper.
0: Bath escape was created because I felt like that was an integral part to the bathypelagic zone breaching 1,000 meters to 4,000 meters underwater
1: this this was it, it started just before world war Two because in the 1930s a couple of americans Otis Barton and um, William Beebe that they, they were basically figured out to go deeper you had to get inside a, a solid steel chamber to protect you from the water pressure so they would climb inside a a solid steel chamber for lack of a better name hang it off a cable and hang it off the side of a ship and they really got down half a mile but the cable was the weakness in that whole system because the cable was so heavy they couldn't really go any deeper on a cable so the whole problem was how do you get a heavy steel chamber strong enough to resist the water pressure and put people inside it and send it well sending it down's easy Getting it to come back up again is a problem. So what the Swiss invented came up with, with the batterscape, which basically get a steel ball that people can go inside and hang it beneath something that will float to the surface. And they came up with the idea of filling up a big float with petrol, because petrol has a lower specific gravity than water. Petrol will float to the surface. So they got a big float filled it up with petrol or gasoline and climbed in and then they added extra weight to it and it would sink. And When they get as deep as they want the weight was uh, steel and it would be held in place with electromagnets. When they got as deep as they want they'd switch off the current to the electromagnets, the weight would fall off and they'd come back up to the surface. It's a little bit like a hot air balloon but in reverse and they, they started doing that and There was a big falling out between Jacques Cousteau, who during the war had uh, invented or co-invented the Aqualung. Uh, He'd got the French involved in uh, August Picard and his bathyscape, but they had a huge falling out. But the French ended up keeping the bathyscape, which annoyed Picard terribly. So he went off to Italy and built another one. And um, so there were two in the 1950s, and they were competing to go deeper. And that's when the... um, One went to sort of one kilometre deep and the next one went to two kilometres and then then three. And then they got down to four kilometres and there was this competition, this race to go deeper. You hear about things like the space race in the 1950s, but a lot of people don't realise there was sort of an underwater race as well. And uh, by the late 1950s, the Americans were building their nuclear submarines and saying, well, how do we explore the deep ocean? So they knocked on August Picard's um, door and said, you know, we want to buy your bathyscape because we want to take it back to America and uh, explore the deep ocean. And that's what they did.
0: What are the benefits of the mixed gas air system and what did it help achieve, would you say?
1: When you see a scuba diver jump in the water, they're not breathing, as some people think, pure oxygen. They're breathing the air that we breathe. Uh, You and I are breathing now. And in approximate terms, what you and I are breathing now is 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen. Now, the nitrogen doesn't have any effect on us as we breathe it now. The oxygen, obviously, we need because it keeps us alive, so we want that part. But when we pressurize normal air and go down, the nitrogen can have adverse effects on us. It can, first of all, uh, under pressure, it can act a bit like a, a, kind of like a narcotic. It can make us a little bit drunk or give us uh, nitrogen narcosis. And we can start to have delusions or we can start to see things. So that's not, and that, that can happen 30, 40 meters deep. The other thing is the nitrogen under pressure. Any gas becomes liquid or a gas will normally. So nitrogen becomes liquid and that gets into our bloodstream, which is okay. But when we relieve the pressure and it's when it's coming out of our bloodstream, if it comes out too fast, it actually bubbles out rather than slowly gets released. This is where the problem that you hear about the divers and getting bends and or getting bent or um, decompression sickness, it's basically if they come to the surface too quickly and the nitrogen is released into their bloodstream too quickly, very, very dangerous. So people started saying, well, we have to have ways of coming to the surface slowly. So we release the liquid back into gas slowly. But what they started to do or what people started to do in the 1930s, say, well, what can we do? What can we have? What can we breathe other than nitrogen? So we still want the oxygen component. Is there something else? And they started mixing oxygen and helium because helium didn't have the same effect or the same um, negative effects on the human body down to a certain extent. So they started saying, well, what they can do now is get special mixtures where you have more oxygen and less nitrogen or you have an oxy- a mix of different gases. And there's a lot of, a lot of work being done in the last 20, 30 years, where we say mixed gas, it's it's basically a certain amount of oxygen, perhaps a, a lesser amount of nitrogen, a certain amount of helium, and each have their advantages and their disadvantages down at different pressures. So the people who swim down to really deep depths will carry different tanks of different mixtures, and they'll go down so far, and they'll switch from one to the other, and keep going. Very specialized, very technical, you need a lot of training, obviously. But mixed gas diving is getting people down to quite deep depths with the human body under pressure.
0: Mm, absolutely. Like, they've gone so far down and confirmed that it's completely dark. Like, they can't see a thing whilst they're down there.
1: No, once you get past about a couple of hundred meters, um, you know, obviously you need to take your lights with you. But it's... it's 98% of the ocean depth, you know, at the deepest point, about 98% is just pitch black. You know, you, you're not going to see anything without any lights. Uh, and it's quite remarkable that life actually survives there, but it does. So,
0: the last thing. I'd like to ask you, Jeff, is, well, you actually said something in the introduction where you speak on your motives for the book, and you mentioned how your secondary motive is to stimulate awareness of the future on a foundation of the knowledge of the past. What would you think the future holds regarding our quest to go deeper?
1: We're on the verge of a lot of technology. It's becoming uh, more commonplace. It's becoming more sophisticated. And when you look at the oceans, at the bottom of the, uh, the deepest part of the oceans, a lot of natural resources that the world needs, rare earth minerals, and people are starting to realise this and saying the future of the deep ocean is there's money to be made or it can be exploited. And the United Nations has sort of divided up the world. And there's exclusive economic zones for oceans around certain countries. But when you get out into the deep, it's further away from land, no one owns it. And so a lot of countries are looking at that saying, well, we can go down and deep. So it is in danger of being exploited. You know, we, we do need to, to look at it and to study it. And back to your previous, well, what you've said in part of this question was looking at the future based on a foundation of the past. And it's one of the things I've really tried to do in the book And the analogy I use of, of, you know, how can can a book talking about the history of going deeper possibly influence people in the future? And my answer to that is I always use the analogy of Antarctica is that people are, are, well, imagine for a moment people weren't really aware of Antarctica, didn't know much about it. Nobody particularly wanted to go there. It just seemed to be a place down the bottom of the world that was cold. Now, if I write a book on ice caps and all those things, you know, a few academics are going to read it and all that and become interested, but the awareness will still be quite limited. But if I write a book about the history, about Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton and all these people and racing, the, the heroic age, Everybody suddenly wants to read these books and become interested and say, you know, and, you know, each year, thousands of people cram onto cruise ships and go down to Antarctica so they can stand next to Shackleton's grave and all that. And it's a history that actually creates their awareness, that creates the interest and and gets them talking about it. And, um, And I thought, well, if I can actually explore the history of going deeper under the ocean and bring it out. And show all the characters and the races and the drama and all that that was involved, and there was an awful lot of that sort of drama. Then that's a way for people to actually think about it, and then you know, and then look and say, well, in the future we're going to be using this sort of equipment, and this is where it evolved from. Um, so, so it really was a kind of. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think of the book as a sort of stepping stone for people. To, You know, if they put it down and say, well, I want to learn more about that subject or I'm going to think about it more to discuss it, then that was really one of the things I was trying to do.
0: That was Jeff Maynard, author of the book The Frontier Below. The past, present and future of our quest to go deeper underwater. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Jeff for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.